This is episode 42 of Cinescope. And oh, what a day! What a lovely day! Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Corey Poff to talk about one of his favorite films, Mad Max Fury Road. Corey, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. How are you? I am doing well as well. (laughs) Um, How about you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Because you and I have known each other for a few years at this point. In fact, everybody knows that I used to co-host Movie Bite. And you're sort of the reason I landed that job with TJ was you sort of passed my name on to him and everything happened. Oh, yeah. I was actually just thinking today, we've known each other for a surprisingly long amount of time in internet time. Yes, I I think 2012 or so. That sounds right. Yeah, 2012. Because you were one of the first people um, I I got to know on Twitter, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah. So how about you share a few things about yourself, what you do, anything you want people to know about you? Well, clearly, since I'm on this podcast, I really enjoy watching movies and talking about them. Um, I love books and I like reading. And I feel like those two interests feed off of each other um, and inform each other. Uh, I also do web development, and I live in North Carolina. I got married this past year, baby on the way in October. Yeah, I mean, those are the most relevant pieces of info about me. Definitely the most interesting part. (laughs) Well, congrats on the marriage and on the upcoming baby. I'm happy for you. Thank you. And uh, it it does need to be said, you read a lot. You are (laughs) one of the most well-read people I know, I think. Well, thank you. I will definitely take that as a compliment. That's it. Best, basically the best compliment you can give someone who likes to read. Great, great. Well, uh, are you ready to move on and just go ahead and start talking about our movie? Yeah, let's go. Let's do it. So we are talking about Mad Max Fury Road, which came out on May 15th of 2015. And this time it is not an accident that we are talking about this movie basically on its two-year anniversary. It was directed by George Miller, who directed the original Mad Max, Mad Max 2, and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, as well as the Nightmare at 20,000 Feet segment of Twilight Zone the movie, as well as The Witches of Eastwick, Lorenzo's Oil, and here are the big hitters, <laughs> Babe Pig in the City, Happy Feet, and Happy Feet 2. Uh, it was written. This film was written by Miller, Brendan McCarthy, and Nicola Thoris. And the music was by Tom Holkenborg, a.k.a. Junkie XL, which is what most people, I think, know him as. But I think this score, let's call him Tom Holkenborg. Yeah. <laughs> he also composed the scores for Paranoia, 300 Rise of an Empire, Divergent, Black Mass, Point Break, Deadpool, Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice with Hans Zimmer, The Dark Tower, and is set to score the upcoming Justice League as well. The movie stars Tom Hardy as Max, Charlie Theron, Nicholas Holt, Hugh Keysburn, Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, Riley Keough, Zoe Kravitz, Abby Lee, and Courtney Eaton. So, what was your first experience with this movie? Uh, I actually went to see it with a friend of mine. Um, I don't think I got to make it to opening night, but we went, I think, the first day that it was open. And we saw it in theaters. And I distinctly remember coming out of the movie 
uh, with my friend and we got into our car and we were driving and it was, we hadn't said a word to each other, uh, since the movie finished. And finally he just goes, wow. And that was <laughs> it for the next five minutes. And then after that, um, it pretty much supplied us with conversation fodder for the next three days on and off. Like we, t we just talked about it. Um, the, the aesthetic elements of it, the acting, the cinematography, the music, and then the themes as well. There was just a whole lot, um, to talk about. And it was really, it was kind of exhilarating, to be honest, that you, that we went and saw this movie, which everyone was hyping up as an amazing action film. And it ended up being more than that. Okay. I also saw this in theaters with a really good friend of mine and not that it was necessary, but I hadn't seen any of the previous Mad Max films. This was a completely new franchise to me. And I really didn't even know anything about the movie. I don't remember thinking back. I don't remember a whole lot of uh, promotional material or trailers or anything like that. I went and saw this movie basically because my friend wanted to see this movie. He was getting ready to head out of town and it'd be the last time I'd see him for a while. And so this was his choice. And he loved it. At the time, I did not. I didn't hate it. I didn't dislike it at all. I just thought it was fine. I I didn't think it was amazing as everybody else certainly seemed to make it out to be. Um, it looked nice. It was cool. It was fun action stuff. But it was almost so nonstop to a point that I was kind of bored, to be honest. And I've owned this on Blu-ray now for a year almost. And still hadn't rewatched it. I had only seen it the one time in theaters up until today, actually. And part of that was because you had been raving about it on Twitter recently, and it was a two-year anniversary, so everybody else was raving about it. And I thought, you know, I have a movie show. Let's watch it and talk about it. And honestly, I did walk away from it this time with a lot more. I don't really know what to attribute my lack of interest the first time around to, but this time around, I guess I was just a whole lot more focused on everything beyond the action. Mm -hmm. And that makes a difference. You have to be prepared to look at things certain ways sometimes in order to get their full potential out in front of you. Absolutely. Yeah. So this time around, I, I definitely appreciated it and enjoyed it and was emotionally affected by it a lot more than I was the first time I watched. Excellent. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I know that you're glad to hear that for sure. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, let's go ahead and start talking about what we do like about it. So just basic story stuff, cinematography, what kind of stuff in there is there to like? I mean, everything. Uh, <laughs> for me, everything. I, it, it really is. I can count, I think, on one hand, the movies uh, that I've watched. And I, I love a bunch of movies, but I can count on one hand the movies that I've walked out of and thought, wow, there really wasn't anything artistically that I would have improved on there. Um, the other ones, let's see, there's the movie Prisoners, then there's Pan's Labyrinth, and then there's this movie. And just, I, I feel like everything from uh, the pacing, the way that George Miller structured the story. Yes, there is a story for everyone out there who's like, what story? And um, even the action, I, I, I know you mentioned in the uh, initially you walked out and you felt that it was so breathless and nonstop that it got boring. And I think one of the things that really impressed me for an action film was that 
Um, yes, there's a lot of action, but there's a surprisingly uh, deep story going on uh, beneath the action. And really, the action doesn't mean much separated from it. Uh, and I like that. I like that there is a cohesion there. Uh, I think that's very unique, too, um, in modern action films, unfortunately. I agree. And, you know, part of it that first time might have just been that I was so overwhelmed by the action that I wasn't focusing as much on the story and on the characters and the, those relationships as I should have. To start talking about just the visuals of this film, it's visually striking from the very first shot when you see Max overlooking out into the desert with the car next to him and just the way Miller and his cinematographer film sand even yes. is mesmerizing. <laughs> I, I don't understand people with that talent because I certainly don't have it, but it's amazing how just that first shot of the film, when you're seeing Max from behind, it's breathtaking. Well, it really, it sets the tone for the entire film. So firmly uh, you're never, you never doubt from that moment on whose world you're in. This is Max's world, and by extension, George Miller's world. And it just feels like, I, I mean, I've seen the opening scene, gosh, probably seven or eight times now. And it just has that feeling. I'm sure you've encountered it with other movies. It feels like something that you're going to watch, let's say, 30, 40 years from now. And it will be one of those iconic moments from film. Oh, certainly. It just sticks with you. And you're like, oh, yeah, it's like that scene in Fury Road, the opening scene in Fury Road. And everyone's going to know what you mean because it's just that scene. Yeah, and I think there are actually a lot of scenes in this movie that are going to be looked back on as technical achievements, huge technical achievements. And there are even some strong character moments from from Charlize Theron as Furiosa and as Tom Hardy as Max or even sure. Nicholas Holt as Nux. There, there's these individual sure. character moments where they are really allowed to shine and it, it's on such a higher level than most typical action films. You're right. Um, but it's not just the cinematography. It's the makeup. It's the costume design, the character design, the world building. It's all so next level. It's outstanding. And even simple things, I say simple, the flame effects. These aren't simple flames or explosions we see. There's there's this sort of color to them that you don't get in most other films that just adds another level to to the the visceral quality of the special effects. Absolutely. Uh, and you mentioned the world building, which is for sure one of my favorite things about the film, simply because in addition to being very robust and there's a there's a lot going on and it's very colorful and interesting i also just love that miller does not treat his audience like they're idiots he does not feel the need to explain every single aspect of this world um there's stuff that goes on that he never fully explains but you feel like there is significance to it because of the part it plays in everything else that's going on you know he doesn't fully explain how this macho death cult that worships cars got started he doesn't feel the need to have like some drab narration going on you know such and such happened and that led to this and that led to that it it's all just organic in the world itself you feel like there's a history here um that's very rich and it it definitely uh, lends itself very well to capturing your attention and keeping it for the entire film Yes, and then as you were talking about the the 
the chase of it all is cool. The the actual action sequences are great, but there is a surprising amount of story depth here. There's survival, there's sacrifice, equality, redemption. All these things are are deep thematic concepts that are buried and revealed throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And even just like the the basic concept of the story, you have these people who are at the the whims at the mercy of this Morton Joe, and the desperation of these people who need water, who rely on this cruel man to simply to, to supply it for them, lest they die. It's it's heartbreaking, and I, I use that word a lot on this show, but or at least it feels like I have the past couple episodes. But it really is. I teared up watching these people so desperate for water, watching these these young men who are sacrificing themselves for some attempt at glory for this man who ultimately doesn't care about them. These people who aren't educated, they don't know what trees are. I mean, there there's so many levels deep that this goes where these people are oppressed and they're not getting anywhere with this guy at the head. Right. Yeah, he's he's milking women. He's treating people as property. He's he's treating people as blood banks. He he makes Max a blood bank because he's a universal donor. It's just depressing <laughs> knowing what world this pe- these people are living in and it just gives you all the more reason to root for Furiosa, to root for Max and the wives as they are trying to make their escape. Yeah, the the world that he he drops you in. I really like that in addition to <laughs> not speaking down to the audience. He also doesn't go the route that uh, would be really easy to take where you over-sentimentalize things, if that's even a word. I feel like it should be if it's not. <laughs> it works for me. Um, it, where he's not setting out to tug on your heartstrings. It's just the emotion of a well-told story that ends up bleeding through and making you respond in that way uh, versus something blatantly uh, manipulative where the the melodrama is just so sledgehammered on you almost you know you walk out and you're feeling like well I feel like I was moved but I don't know if it was honest like being honestly moved like did I it's sort of the feeling the difference between a well-made film and you know the Hallmark channel I guess (laughs) right and um, I really liked that the the emotion in the story was very natural and it just came out of him telling the stories of these characters in a very dark world and whatever will be will be you're right there weren't any moments in this film where i was getting emotional that i felt that it was a result of them souping up the emotional music and really like having a character on screen crying so i knew that it was my turn to cry too right, it was right. just the situations these characters were in naturally that that made me emotional at times and alternately made me cheer it it was never manufactured it was all organic uh anything else about the story you wanted to talk about uh no i think we'll we'll start digging in more in that in the the themes section so definitely uh well let's talk about characters so what do you have to say about tom hardy as max brilliant i mean i love tom hardy i haven't seen anything uh with him in it where he's disappointed uh, I think I first saw him in Inception. He was great as Eames. <laughs> and he really he really took Max's character uh, with this 
very like very limited script. Uh, he has very few words to say throughout the entire film, but he makes all of those words count. Um, and he also manages to say far more just with his facial expressions than frankly, a lot of actors today can with, you know, a two hour script. Yeah. He, he is a man of few words. He emotes very well. You see a lot in his eyes. He's clearly a character who's haunted by the failures of his past. Um, we get that through the, these flashbacks or these visions that he has popping up in front of him that cause visceral reactions. He will shield his face when he sees something coming at him, even though nothing's really there, because he's thinking back to these failures in his past. His He has this instinct to run, to survive, but it almost seems like that's what caused him to lose the people in his life in the first place was him running away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he sticks to his instinct of survival throughout the film, but it transforms from survival for himself to eventually survival for Furiosa and the wives. And it's because he, well, first off, she starts trusting him because she's in a, a moment of desperation and it's her only choice. I have to trust this man who has just threatened me and these other women, or I'm going to die at the hands of Immortan Joe. And Max recognizes that he recognizes that, she is trusting him and putting faith in him, even though she has no real reason to based on the way he's treated her. And he starts to turn it around. And so what starts as survival for himself turns into survival for these other people. And that becomes his mission over the course of the film. Yes. His character arc is very much one of uh, self-serving, self-concerned survival mode to Really, it's a very, a very redemptive, self-sacrificial uh, conclusion. And to to watch that exchange between he and Furiosa and the way that they relate to one another morph over the course of the film, it feels simultaneously like the most natural thing in the world and also quite tremendous. Like, this is a big deal that this is happening for this character. And I love watching even the way his facial expressions soften, not in a sentimental way, but in a a caring way. There's a tenderness that comes into him that was not present prior to meeting uh, these women. And uh, that that resonates with me on on a number of levels. I think that it's a very very beautiful character arc. His first interaction with Furiosa is one of aggression. They're fighting each other. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, he's desperately trying to give her a blood infusion, which yes. one that's expert set up and payoff on Mr. Miller's part. We know it from the very beginning that he's a universal donor. And here at the end, here he is trying to save somebody with his universal blood. That, that's wonderful storytelling, but then it's also a wonderful transformation for the character. You you see the polar opposites that happens over the course of this film. Mm hmm. Now, what about Furiosa herself? I really loved the way that Charlie Theron played her because there was a lot of potential there. I feel like for the vast majority of films in Hollywood, whenever you have a uh, there's such a, there's such a drive to have a tough woman character that it always rings a false note. They always go one step too far. It feels like we everyone has to be this macho person who's throwing other people around and we're going to have a throwdown, whether they're male or female. 
And it just, it feels like you're shoving a male character into a female's role. And it, it feels false. And they didn't do that here. She plays uh, Furiosa as a hardened, tough, but not macho woman who has had a very hard life and who is doing everything in her power to protect those who are with her, particularly these, these more vulnerable women. Um, and she does that every way that she knows how. Um, but she also, I know it's probably easy to overlook this line in the film, but it's, I feel like it has a lot of significance. When she says she meets the many mothers towards the middle of the film, and she points to Max and Nux, and her description of them is what? She says they're reliable. And, and that right there, I feel like, is probably the crux of the matter for her, is that her entire life, um, the only men she's known have taken advantage of her, have abused her, have treated her in every way except the way that men ought to treat women. And here for the first time, um, she's encountered men who have stepped into the role that they're supposed to have and are actually fulfilling that and trying to fulfill it, even when they do it clumsily or they're not quite there yet. That's what they're trying to do. And she responds to that. And it's, it's a very, a very powerful thing. That's a really good point. Um, she's not the only character to come across this either. You know, Nux, we'll, we'll get to him more in just a moment, but Nux has a similar transformation where all of a sudden somebody is showing him kindness and showing care and compassion towards him. And it transforms him. It turns him into somebody completely different. He starts fighting for a different side. What what that sort of boils down to is, you know, treat people as you want to be treated. That's a very basic concept. But Furiosa has lived her whole life not knowing kindness from men. And here are two men who are helping her out. And Nux goes his whole life thinking that Immortan Joe is going to ride with him to Valhalla. And he comes to find that's a lie. And there's this woman over here who shows him compassion and shows him a different path. And it's it's just a really good visual of treating people correctly. One moment that I really love from Furiosa is pretty much the first time we see her as they're driving off, they're going down the road, and she makes this look before she actually turns the wheel and goes off course. And it's this very clear decision to defy Immortan Joe, knowing that it could cost the lives of her and of the women she's trying to harbor and protect. And then, as I was talking about earlier, she she decides to trust Max despite his unkindness because it's the only choice he has. It's a sacrificial choice to save the other women. And because she puts her faith in him, he begins to put faith in her. And in fact, she's a beacon of hope for everybody. That's that's really what Furiosa sort of represents is because she is this character who has witnessed a better place. She grew up in the green place. It, from it, She remembers it from her childhood, and that's where she's taking people back. And it's the only thing anybody's ever heard of this place that's not covered by sand. <laughs> and that's what they're, they're driving towards. They're driving towards this oasis, this utopia that is so different than what they've always known. And so she is that beacon of hope. And at the end of the film, when they are making their way back to the Citadel, she is continuing to be a beacon of hope. She she has killed Joe. She has almost lost her life. Max is desperately trying to save her. And it, it just shows how much this character is central to this film, even more than Max himself is. This is 
I mean, the movie is called Mad Max, but it's really more about Furiosa in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, um, the fact that Miller managed to effectively, I feel like he juggles two main characters and doesn't shortchange either one. Um, he, he plays them off of each other very, very well. Uh, that's an achievement in and of itself. Uh, most people can't even handle one main character, and he fleshes out two uh, with about a quarter of the script that most people would require. Now, I talked about Nux just a little bit. What do you have to say about Nicholas Holt's character here? Uh, you know, to be honest, um, there are times when I think that he is my favorite part of the entire film. I don't. I think the only other thing that I'd seen Holt in was uh, Jack the Giant Slayer. He was in that. And he was fine in that, didn't make much of an impression on me, but he really got into this character, and no matter what else he plays in future films, for me, he'll always be Nux. He just he did a fantastic job, and the character itself, I think there's an even more moving and redemptive story arc for Nux than there is even for Max or Furiosa, because with Nux... We basically have, you know, he's even further down than Max in terms of a very twisted sense of what life should be. For, for Max, it's survival and running. For Nux, it is, I mean, he's basically the cannon fodder of this warlord. And his greatest ambition is to kill and then be killed in the line of duty and go to Valhalla. And it's a very violence-centered world that he lives in. And he goes from basically being one of the chief proponents of this death cult to encountering this woman who completely changes his outlook on what is and is not worth fighting for and dying for. And his sacrifice at the end of the movie is done so subtly and quietly and beautifully that made the film for me. Everything else about the film is fantastic, but that made the film for me, that scene uh, between him and... Capable. Capable, thank you. He goes from, you know, they, they talk a lot about witnessing each other. They go, witness me, before they jump off and, and do a suicide mission. And... He transforms from that mindset to the end of the film. He sacrifices himself, and the only person that he says witness me to is this woman, because that's all that matters at this point, is that the woman that he loves sees what he is doing and knows that he is giving himself for her. And when she acknowledges that, that's all that matters to him, and it is a complete 180 from the Nux that we get to know at the beginning of the film. You pretty much said everything for me. Nicholas Holt, his character Nux here, is probably my favorite as well. The only thing I think I'd seen Nicholas Holt in before was uh, he's in the X-Men movies as Young Beast, uh, First Class, and... Oh, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah, whatever, the Days of Future Past. Yes. And also, he was in Warm Bodies. I think those are the only other films I've seen him in. And this is, uh, again, a 180 for him as an actor, I think, uh, to play such an extreme character in this film. But going from seeking glory and death to seeking glory and approval in the eyes of Capable, that is such a huge 
turn for this character and it it doesn't feel like it's it's shoehorned in it it's again a very natural a very organic growth for the character as you watch it in the film absolutely and again props to george miller for for handling all of that as pitch perfectly as he did now i have the wives sort of grouped into a category together these are all brave women who are just seeking a better life that's all they're doing they're, they're fair they're beautiful they're soft but they're at the same time willing to do whatever it is whatever it takes for freedom they they do some pretty outstanding things um there's capable basically recruiting nux there's Angharad, Angharad, I think that's how it's pronounced, who does die in this film, but it's sort of as a taunt to a Morton Joe in the first place. She's sort of hanging out the side of the truck saying, hey, hey, look at me over here. I've got your baby, that kind of thing. You know, he's taunt, she's taunting him. Right. And you've got Zoe Kravitz as Toast, who is obviously familiar with guns. And at the end, she's the one who distracts Joe long enough for Furiosa to kill him. And you've got these other girls, they're, they're willing to do whatever it takes. And they're so close-knit, understandably. They, they are a very close group of women because they're dealing and struggling with the same problem with Immortan Joe. They are, they are there to give him children. And that's it. That's the only value they have. And that's the only value they've ever known. So as they struggle together and they grow close together and they're escaping together now, the loss of Angharad is devastating to them. And in that moment, what's really sad is that one of the girls, Cheeto, who I think is the youngest one, actually tries to go back to Joe because it's the only life she's ever known. And hey, we weren't being chased by trucks when I lived this life. So even though he mistreats me, at least I'm not dead. It's so sad that that's the alternative for her. Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit like, uh, whenever I see that scene, it reminds me of, uh, the Israelites in Exodus, you know, as soon as Pharaoh starts giving chase and it becomes hard, they're like, let's go back to Egypt. At least we had food there. Right, right. It's just a lack of perspective on everything, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Do you have anything to say about the wives? I think you pretty much covered it. They're very interesting characters for me because, again, where um, a lot of other directors would have settled for hey, they're not even really secondary characters. They can just be there as eye candy or something. George Miller doesn't settle for that, and they have some very thought-provoking lines um, and interactions with the other characters. And I really enjoyed, for me, some of the more touching moments of the film were actually seeing the wives interact with the mothers uh, when they meet them. I cannot remember her name, but there's one of the wives makes a comment about how she thought the mothers were better than killing everyone that they came across. And this older woman uh, takes her aside and shows her a, a basket full of seeds and fruits. And it's this moment of sanity and calm in the midst of this bloody and uh, violence-ridden tale where we basically have an even bigger perspective going on, where she says, look, it wasn't always like this, and this isn't normal. This isn't what we should be doing. This isn't the world that, that women ought to know naturally. 
And also that carries over then in the later scene where uh, Max is leading them back through Joe's men and the one uh, mother is cut during the fight and she's dying. And what does she reach for? She doesn't reach for one of the weapons. She doesn't reach for the things that you might expect her to reach for. She, she reaches around and tries to get her hope chest or her uh, basket that she showed the, the woman earlier. And the wife, she hands it to her because she knows there's been this connection there. I feel like I don't quite appreciate that as much as I want to. And I think, again, that's one of the things that makes it a good movie is that there's more to dig into there that I don't even feel like I've started to. And I've, I've watched it six or seven times now. So it's just a really rich story again with great characters and the wives are no different in that respect. Are there any other characters that you wanted to mention? Um, like maybe a Morton Joe, I don't have a whole lot to say about him, but well, I would just mention him actually in contrast with Max, because I think that's where he's most interesting. Um, and one, one way that they're fun to, to look at is that when you consider that in a lot of ways, women are central to both of their worlds, both Joe and Max are intimately related to and concerned about women. And yet their ways of approaching it are far different. They're, they're opposite. The one uh, views them as things. They are to be used up. Um, there is no sense of nurture, uh, tenderness, protection, sacrifice. And those, those virtues so noticeably absent in Joe are what end up playing such a big role in Max's character uh, transformation. Um, and so, yes, women are central to both, but in only one of them are they actually valued and treasured and protected. Um, and that's that ends up making all the difference. Right. Joe only wants to protect him in the sense that they're his property and they might give him a son as an heir, whereas Max is actually concerned about the value of their lives and the right they have to live a good life. Right. It, I mean, it really boils down to a the difference between viewing yourself as the center of the universe, which Joe clearly does, versus viewing yourself as put here to serve, which is what Max eventually sees himself as. Right. Any other characters you wanted to mention? I mean, props to the guy who was on the the war rig and playing that bass guitar with the flames. <laughs> yes. That was probably, I, I remember laughing out loud in the theater, and but it's so weird, but it just fits. So whoever he is, thank you, because it's a memorable <laughs> part of the film. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting character designs and concepts, from the war boys themselves to Immortan Joe himself. I mean, he's a disgusting individual. You see him prepping for his body armor or whatever you want to call it at the beginning of the film. He's having to put like, talcum powder all over himself and mm -hmm. he's got these sores all over his body and it's gross to be honest he's he's a gross person uh both in outlook and in physical appearance and then you have the bullet farmer and the people eater and all these weird named characters who are all so unique in their presentation it, it really shows how imaginative miller is i think for sure well, cool. Let's go ahead and talk about the music a little bit. So as I said, it was composed by 
Junkie XL is what he's most often known as, but I think this time let's call him Tom Holkenborg because that is his real name. And man, what a score he has given us here. I think it's not too far to say that this is probably his best score so far. Would you agree or are you familiar with him at all? Oh yeah, I've uh, I've followed his work more or less consistently since he scored Fury Road. I went back and listened to some of his earlier ones. Um, and whenever he's got something new now, I always go and check it out, even if I'm disappointed by it. And to be honest, I, I totally agree. He, this is his best work. Um, and even some of his later stuff, I feel like he borrows heavily from the work he already did for Fury Road. Yeah, he really hasn't come into the limelight as a primary composer until like the past four years or so. He's really sort of been one of the remote control, I think is the name of Hans Zimmer's production company. I think he's been a part of that for a long time, and he's clearly got the Zimmer trademarks in his composition, but he really brings everything to a next level here. The entire score is so kinetic and integral to what is happening on screen. In fact, there's a lot of it that is actually what is called diegetic, which means that it is actually happening on screen. So the war drums, the electric guitar, all that kind of stuff is happening within the film within the universe, they are actually playing and performing this music, which is really cool. And it, it shows a lot to the, the value of music in that world. It's, it's war music. It's a call to arms. It's driving music. I mean, that, that's what it is. And it, it, it's so, like I said, visceral and high octane and just so much fun to listen to. I also love that there's so much of it. I really hate when, you go and get a soundtrack after you've seen the film and it's this stunted 45, 50 minute collection of music. And you sit there and think, I heard so much more music in the film. Where is it? And so he delivered the full thing with uh, the deluxe edition of his Fury Road score. I mean, it's almost two hours worth of music. And I noticed, to be honest, my favorite track on the entire score has been and probably always will be uh, Brothers in Arms, the extended version that can just go across all of them, the extended version of every song on there. I feel like that particular track distills the epicness that is Fury Road. It's very, very heavy. It's very driving. The drums are prominent. Um, but there is also a theme that comes into play about halfway through the song that really lends it a grandeur in addition to the power that's going on. It's not just, oh, this is heavy music and oh, they're hitting the drums a lot. It's, wow, I feel like I want to, you know, outfit my own war rig and go drive across the desert. <laughs> it's just really good music. And I also noticed, I was listening to it again uh, recently, and I noticed some of the later tracks, uh, particularly those around the time when the wives meet the mothers, uh, the music takes on an almost classical feel, which I appreciate it a lot more in recent listenings. Uh, it's very, it's a contrast to what has come before, but it also fits very, very well. Um, it's very moving, and you'll recall the scene where Furiosa, after figuring out that the green place no longer exists, she falls down on her knees and just screams into the wind. And aside from being a brilliant piece of cinematography right there, it's a beautiful shot. The music really matches that emotion. And that's all that I see in my mind whenever this piece plays. 
Yeah, you have the contrast of the high octane stuff as well as some of that mournful, those beautiful themes that you hear at the moments like at the very beginning when they are rushing for the water for the first time or when Angherad is killed or at the end when uh, everybody has learned that Immortan Joe is dead and they're free and they're going to have this new life with these new people leading them. All those moments in the moment you mentioned, there's this really beautiful, stirring, more orchestral sound to contrast with the war drums and the electric guitar. And it, it really is masterful, I, I think, which is something I never thought I'd say about a junkie XL score, which is why <laughs> I want to call him Tom Holkenborg this time around. Yep. And uh, all that being said, the extended edition, the deluxe version of this soundtrack is $7.99 on iTunes, 26 tracks and like two hours plus. It is definitely worth the purchase. So if you like film scores at all, I would highly recommend going to check this one out. Now let's go ahead and move on to relevance or themes or concepts in the film that we can extract. So what do you, what do you have to start us off? Well, first, actually, um, very much tied into the themes. I'm going to recommend a book because I like recommending books. Uh, one that I think uh, this would never happen, but I feel like the book and the movie should be packaged as one of those um, film book combos that they sometimes do. Not and it's the book is Men in Marriage by George Gilder, and I recommend it because it's essentially a uh, dissertation. It's it's the nonfiction version of Mad Max and of Mad Max's world, and I don't mean by that that he's got um, characters running around with guns and spiky cars or anything like that, but it is a a uh, very long essay, one can call it, it's a book-length essay on men and women and their relation to one another and how they make up society. And so I would really, really encourage uh, you and anyone who's listening to find that book and read it and then rewatch Mad Max. And you will see a lot of what Gilder talks about in terms of Here's what happens when women are treated primarily as property. Here's what happens when men abdicate their responsibility, um, et cetera, et cetera. These things that Gilder talks about play out in story form in Fury Road. Uh, and so the, the film and the book really bolster each other in that way. So I highly recommend the book. Um, in terms of themes, I just touched on at least two. Men and women need each other. Uh, they were created for each other, and it's really difficult, I think, to come away with the proper perspective on the film and what the film is saying without a biblical perspective of that. And just really, when men are self-serving and primarily concerned with their own happiness, their own whatever, and women are not treated as they ought to be, well you're going to have a messed up society and Mad Max is essentially Mad Max is all of that reductio ad absurdum. It, it takes everything to an extreme. Um, it is a hyperbolic version of a very messed up society, which we can honestly see some of today. And so again, for, for anyone who is under the delusion that this is mainly a movie about crazy loud men chasing each other in cars. No, 
there's a lot going on in this film, uh, far more than I could ever hope to cover in a podcast. Uh, I've been debating writing a probably multi-length blog post series on it. We'll see. But yeah, how about you? Well, at the forefront, I think, is this theme of redemption. You have Max helping Furiosa and the wives to sort of redeem himself for any sort of failure he's had in his past of protecting people. Uh, he's haunted by something. We don't know what it is exactly, though, though at the end, uh, before they make the decision to go back to the Citadel, Max has this vision of this little girl who actually calls him Papa. So maybe some daughter that he lost due to maybe his inaction. We don't know for sure, but that's something we can maybe assume. So you have him redeeming himself for that failure by protecting Furiosa and wives and helping them to to get back and to find a new home for themselves. Then you also have Furiosa, who's helping the wives to seek a new home to sort of redeem herself for maybe allying herself with Joe at any point. Um, I mean, she's she's obviously worked with him in some way to some extent because here she is a lieutenant, a trusted lieutenant driving this this rig uh, to get fuel. So maybe some sort of rede redemption there on that front. And then the the biggest one, I think, is obviously Nux, who betrays Joe, leaves this life of seeking Valhalla behind in order to help Max, Furiosa, the wives, and eventually sacrificing himself for their cause, for their protection. Um, that's one of the big themes for me. And then just speaking of home, you know, there's this concept of home throughout the film where Max, his home has been destroyed. He's a vagabond. He's roaming around seeking the next place. You have the wives seeking a new home, uh, to to raise their children, whatever it may be, to escape Immortan Joe. And then you have Furiosa, who's seeking her old home. And she doesn't find it, but she finds a, a new opportunity. And then lastly, what I have at least, is equality. There's this this idea of women equaling men. You know, Furiosa is every bit the equal to Max. In fact, she, she actually bests him in hand-to-hand -hand combat until Nux steps in and helps him out. And she's more central character to the film than Max is. She she does many things often associated with only men. She she drives a rig. She's a sharpshooter. She's skilled in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But that doesn't take away her femininity either. It's just showing that she is just as capable as Max is. Even the wives prove themselves useful beyond just looking pretty. You have Toast, uh, who's familiar with guns and distracts Joe. You've got capable recruiting Nux. You've got all of them standing strong against not only Joe, but the first time Max is introduced to these characters, he's sort of the antagonist. They stand up to him as well. And then lastly, you've got the, the Vuvalini, who are this clan of all women who are also capable shooters and drivers. So all of those ways in showing that women are equal to men. They all have their purposes, but there there isn't this division that Immortan Joe has set up in the world of these people do this only and these people do this only. I think there's a sense in which the film um, is also pointing to a different but equal mentality with the male and female characters in that, yes, Furiosa and the wives and the Buvalini, they all in some ways fulfill the same roles but also not really in the sense that we see, yes, the, the women are, are doing these things that we might typically associate with men, but 
It's also quite clear that in some ways they shouldn't have to be. The women are on the run. They're trying to defend themselves from uh, these men who are chasing them. And again, going back to uh, Furios's comment about the men being reliable, again, with men and women being for each other and when they actually work together, uh, that's when you actually have society or a society worth preserving. And they represent a sacrificial and they complement each other in ways that you do not see in Immortan Joe's world at all. The women are able to do what they do when the men do what they do and vice versa. They, they play off of each other. Uh, and that's, that's something that I wish more films would acknowledge. And then one more aspect of equality that I had down was uh, the people having an equal right to water, to food, etc. At the end, you know, everyone is so overjoyed at Joe's death and the hope of a new, better life led by these women rather than the, the cruel Joe and his war boys. It's just showing that, hey, all these people, we have a, a, a right to coexist together and have access to the same things. And then finally, what I have written down is uh, the idea of survival versus sacrifice. And that's that's really the the story arc of Max. He goes from seeking his own survival and running away, and then eventually the survival of the wives the of Furiosa willing to die to help them at certain points. And there's Nux, there's Furiosa, all of these characters who are willing to put themselves in danger to sacrifice themselves to protect others. So lots of these heavy issues that this movie definitely wrestles with. Anything else? I think that about covers it for sure. The, the themes of sacrifice um, versus survival, redemption, family, men and women. Again, that's why I really would highly recommend that book by Gilder, uh, Men in Marriage, because it, I feel like it will make the film even deeper to you once you've read it. Thanks for the recommendation. Do you have any sort of final thoughts on the movie? Uh, go watch it. If you have not seen it, <laughs> you need to watch it. And then once you've watched it, uh, watch it again. I'd also highly recommend getting the Black and Chrome edition, which is now out, probably been out for a few months now on Blu-ray. It is stunning. Uh, it's a, in some ways a very different movie from the color version, um, but just as much worth uh, your time. I was going to ask you about that because I obviously haven't seen the black and chrome edition, but I was just reading where Miller said that the black and white cut was the best version of the film. So I, I'm curious to watch that. Yeah. And I, I may be uh, remembering incorrectly, but I'm pretty sure I read somewhere that that was the version of the film he wanted to release um, initially. It's his favorite version of the film. And it's really neat to watch the colorized and the black and white version back to back and compare and contrast. Yeah, I'll have to seek it out and see if I, I can enjoy that just as much because I think the color is a lot of this film style wise and cinematography wise, but I think it could be just as visually stimulating in black and white. So I, I'd be curious to, to check that out for myself. Mm-hmm. As for me, you know, I sort of had my own transformation watching this film because the first time I, I wasn't crazy about it. I thought it was fine. And this time I think there, there's a whole lot more under the surface. And I, I love films that you can do that with where you can just sort of be semi mindless about it and just enjoy an extended two hour car chase. But on the other hand, I think 
there, there's so much thematically to struggle with and story-wise and character-wise, there's a lot of meat on this film's bones that I think if you, if you delve into it, you're going to be rewarded for that. So definitely check it out if you haven't or go rewatch it. It's two years old now. Good opportunity to go watch it for the first time, maybe. So with that, I think that is the end of the official 42nd episode of Cinescope. Thank you so much for joining me tonight, Corey. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Contact for the show. You can find it on facebook.com slash Cinescope podcast and at Cinescope pod on Twitter. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And just a quick reminder about the giveaway. I'm not going to go over all the details now, but if you listen to episode 41 or episode 40, all of the details of that giveaway are outlined towards the end of the episode. So go check those out. If you have any feedback or ideas, email me at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that to contact me regarding co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love, if you have a movie that you think you could talk about for up to 45 minutes or more, let me know. I'd love to have you on the show, just like Corey here. The best place to find me on Twitter is at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, and also Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes and all the contact information can be found at our website, thecinescopepodcast.com. And that's all for this week. Thank you once again, Corey. It's been awesome having you on the show. Thank you, man. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 42. I'm Chad Hopkins, this was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 43. Have fun, and celebrate movies. Mm -hmm.